Thanks for downloading Development Drums. I'm Owen Bader in Ethiopia. Development Drums is a podcast about international development issues. And my guest today is Peter Singer, the famous philosopher whose new book, The Life You Can Save, is about the moral duty to give money for developing countries. I'll be talking to Peter in a few minutes. But before that, I want to remind you that you can download Development Drums free on iTunes. Just search for Development Drums in the iTunes store and you can set it to download each episode automatically. Alternatively, you can download Development Drums from the Development Drums website at developmentdrums.org. I want to thank our many listeners around the world for your continuing interest in development issues. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell me your ideas for future episodes and how I can improve the show. If you go to Facebook, there's a Development Drums group, and you can suggest topics and guests for future shows, and you can put your questions uh, for future guests. On the Development Drums website, you'll find links to the books, the articles and the websites that we talk about in each episode. And by popular request, I'm now also going to provide transcripts of episodes there too, although there may be some delay before the transcript is, is available on the site. And finally, if you have any problems getting the show to download where you live, please email me on owen at developmentdrums.org. That's owen at developmentdrums.org, and I'll see if I can help. I'm joined today by Peter Singer, who is Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. New Yorker magazine called him the most influential living philosopher. His latest book, The Life You Can Save, is about international development, and in this edition of Development Drums, we'll be exploring the arguments in the book. Peter, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you. It's good to be with you. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. I'm a a huge fan of yours. When I was an undergraduate, I was very heavily influenced by your book, Animal Liberation, about animal rights. And not only did it contribute to my decision to become a vegetarian, which I've actually been ever since, it also convinced me that we should try to live our lives according to some kind of intellectually defensible ethical principles. Is it important to you in your work that um, you influence the way people live their lives? Well, I think it is to a certain extent. I mean, it's it's great when people say, as you just did, that they read Animal Liberation and they became a vegetarian, or even more broadly, that uh, it influenced them to think about ethics and to want to live in accordance with ethical principles. Uh, if that didn't happen, um, if it didn't happen at all, and somehow if I thought it's never going to happen, I might feel that a lot of the writing I do is a bit pointless. Um, I don't really want to write just for my philosophical colleagues to discuss what I say in academic journals that nobody reads or that uh, don't make any practical difference to the world. So, so yes, it, it is important to me, but um, I suppose uh, I'm here for the long run, and uh, even if people were not reading my works much now, but I had some confidence that people would come to them in time and think about them, that would probably be enough to keep me going. Great. Okay, so let's let's see if we can persuade some people about your argument in The Life You Can Save. Um, and, and let's begin with the, the central argument, which is your analogy of 
a child in the pond. Tell us, tell us that story. I ask uh, people to imagine that they're walking across a park and there's a shallow ornamental pond in the park. And as they pass it by, they notice that there's a small child, a, a toddler who's fallen in and appears to be in imminent danger of drowning. Uh, they look around for the parents or the babysitter, but there's nobody there. So uh, naturally, the first instinct is to rush down into the pond and pull the child out. And then they realize that they're wearing a, a new pair of shoes that they just bought recently that's quite expensive. They don't really have time to get them off. Um, should they nevertheless rush into the pond even though the shoes are going to be ruined? Uh, most people say, well, you know, that's absurd. You shouldn't think about a pair of shoes as compared to saving a child's life. Uh, if anybody did think that and, and decided not to rescue the child because they were worried about ruining their shoes, there'd be something seriously wrong with them. They would have done the wrong thing. They'd be some kind of monster even. Um, so, so that's the story, and I guess I use that to say, look, we do think we have an obligation to save a child's life if we can do it relatively easily, and even if there is some cost to us, if that cost is one that's clearly not comparable to the loss of a child's life. Uh, and then I move from there to looking at the situation with regard to global poverty and what I would argue we can do at relatively low cost to save the lives of, of children living in extreme poverty, and adults too, of course. This argument first appeared in your article about nearly 40 years ago now, Famine, Affluence and Morality. Uh, you, I think you were writing about the Bengal famine. There's um, another article actually that made a big impact on me, but it, it made the important point that not only is it a good thing to do to save a child's life if you can, but that you actually have a moral duty to do it. And that's quite an important distinction, because I think most people would think it was a nice thing to do if you can. Uh, but you're making a stronger point than that, aren't you? Which is that you actually have an obligation to help in a situation like that. Definitely. Uh, I want us to get beyond that kind of thinking that says, uh, all you really have obligations to do are to obey the thou shalt not rules. So uh, you have obligations not to steal and not to maim or kill others and, and not to cheat or lie perhaps and a variety of things like that but they were all you know things that you should not do uh, I think that some of the things that we ought to be doing that it's good to do are just as obligatory as some of the things that uh, uh, violate those rules so I'm trying to get people to see that to allow a child to die when you can easily save that child at small cost yourself is really something that is, is not only as serious but more serious than many of the infractions of moral rules that um, people normally associate with, with wrongdoing. Now, your book is, is partly an exercise in answering those people who've raised objections to this argument over the last 40 years since you wrote the article. And my guess is that there are lots of people um, listening to Development Drums who are thinking of some of those objections now. So let's try and address the, the key arguments in turn. And it seems to me that there are four main objections that have been levelled and which you, which you address in your book. And the most obvious objection is a, is a practical objection, which is that uh, 
um, if you're saving a child's life, you know that you are going to walk into the pool and and save the child right there. Whereas if you give money to charity, you don't actually know whether you will end up saving a life. Uh, one of one of the listeners, Will Snell, uh, who I know is engaged himself in NGO work, asks how do you, how do you get round the view, which is sometimes justified, that actually a large proportion of the money is spent on administration or isn't used well? Well, firstly, I think that people often have uh, exaggerated ideas of how much of the money is spent on administration. It, it depends on the organization. But you know, I've talked about this quite a lot in the last few months, and I've done it on uh, talkback radio. And I very often get this, and I get people saying, somebody said to me the other day, look, uh, you know, if I give money to these organizations, 90% of it will get swallowed up by the organization. Only 10% will get overseas to the people who need it. Now, you know, if you look at the uh, balance sheets, the, uh, or the financial reports of, of these organizations, um, it's actually pretty much the reverse. About 90% of it will get to the people who need it, and about 10%, maybe in some cases 15%, uh, will get used in administration. It's it's quite a modest figure. And, of course, you need some administration. We shouldn't begrudge organizations having to pay some staff to um, put the checks in the bank or uh, um, you know, make sure that the money, uh, that the projects that are selected are good projects that are going to be effective. That's a very important thing. Uh, so I think we've got to say, look, <coughs> Compared to the need out there, even if only 80% of what I give, or even if only you know, even if we're only 50%, although I'm sure it's pretty much always more than that. But even if it were only 50% that got to the people who needed, their needs are so much greater than ours that uh, 50 cents would do a lot more good for them than a dollar is going to do for me. So I'd be prepared to wear it, even if that were the case. But I think mostly it's not the case. But you're reasonably confident that when you give money to an NGO that it will end up saving a life. You, you, you're you confident enough to make the moral case that people have an obligation to do that. Well, I'm not, I mean, I'm not confident that every time you give money to an NGO it will save a life, and that would be going too far. I am confident that most of the money will get to people who need it where it will do some good for them. Um, if you really want to be highly confident about saving a life, then you have to give to particular organizations that are doing that kind of work. Uh, organizations that are, for example, uh, immunizing kids against measles, uh, providing oral rehydration therapy in areas where there's lots of diarrhea and some kids die from that, providing uh, bed nets in areas where there's malaria, which kids die from. Uh, all of those things. And, and in the book, I talk about some organizations that are doing those things. And uh, yes, I think you can be confident with some of them that your donation will save a life. It, depending on what it's doing, it you know it might be more than the cost of a pair of shoes, and depending on on where you shop for your shoes. If you shop at some expensive Fifth Avenue stores and you pay a thousand dollars for a pair of shoes, then I think you can be highly confident. If you only pay three hundred dollars for a pair of shoes, um, you know you can't be quite so confident that three hundred dollars will be enough to save a life. Uh, if you go to pay less shoes and pay $25, probably it's not going to save a life, although it may still do a significant amount of good to someone. So that's the practical objection. There are, I, I think, three theoretical objections to your argument and which you address in the book. 
And the first is a difference between action and inaction. Lots of religions and societies draw a moral distinction between doing something, such as killing a person, and allowing something to happen, such as if a doctor lets a person die. And yet most moral philosophers, and that includes you, are arguing that there is no moral distinction, that we ought to be as concerned about doing something as we are about letting something happen. Yes, that's right. Um, but let me say that I don't think the argument of my book really requires me to make the strong claim that you just mentioned, that we ought to be as concerned about letting something happening happen as about doing something. Uh, because my book, well, the argument of my book doesn't depend on saying, for instance, that if you don't give money to an aid organization, but let's say you, you spend it on a vacation, uh, and because of that, somewhere in the world, a child dies who would have lived had you taken the money you spent on the vacation and given it to the aid organization. I, I don't say that this makes you a murderer. Um, that would be the strong claim. And I think there are some things that can be said about that, primarily about motivation and so on, which, which enable us to draw a distinction there. Um, all I have to say, really, to get my argument go, is that that this is something that is uh, very serious, that, uh, that allowing something bad to happen when we can prevent it is something morally serious. I don't have to say that it's exactly on the same footing as um, causing, directly causing, doing that thing to happen. Now, having said that, you know, as a philosopher, as distinct from the author of, of the book, The Life You Can Save, um, I would be prepared to defend the, the stronger thesis uh, with some caveats for the relevance of, of motivation to how we assess agents. But, but in, in some ultimate sense, I don't think it makes a difference if we bring about a death, whether by an action or an inaction, and if we know that this will be the result of our action or inaction, and if our motivation is the same in both cases, uh, I can't see that there's a difference. You know, I can't see that the, the mere fact that in one case, to take a famous philosophical example, in one case you push someone underwater and hold them there till they drown, and in the other case you are motivated to do this and planning to do it, but they actually trip and hit their head and fall face down into the water, and you just sit there and make sure that uh, they don't recover consciousness, and, but in fact they don't, so you don't have to do anything. You just sit there while they drown. Uh, you know, I really don't think that, that, that in that case, what you've done, your deliberate refraining from easily helping them, uh, is morally any different than if you'd actually pushed them into the water. Right. So, But you're saying that, in fact, for the argument you're making in this book, you don't need to believe quite as strongly as that in, in there being no distinction no, between that's right. action and inaction. No, if somebody said, look, the person who allows the drowning to happen is doing something very seriously wrong, but not quite as badly wrong as the person who actually pushes the person into the water and holds them under, for the purposes of my book, that would be fine. It wouldn't, wouldn't affect my argument. Right, they're still going to agree that we have an obligation to do something about uh, people dying in developing countries. The, the second theoretical disagreement with your book is that we 
is that there are people who say that we don't have the same obligation to people who are a long way away from us as we do to, for example, our own family or neighbours. So this is an argument that says that charity begins at home, that we should sort out uh, th those nearest and dearest to us, and we should only worry about people who are many miles away if, if we've got capacity left over to care for them. What do you say to that? Well, uh, I would say that I recognise, of course, that as human beings we are always going to feel m most strongly obligated to do something for those who are close to us, particularly parents for children, but generally speaking for kin. Um, that's the kind of animal that we are. Uh, and we can see that essentially throughout human societies and in our close primate relatives and other social mammals as well. So I think we have a kind of a biological bias to helping our kin. There's no doubt about that. But if we try to look at it ethically, um, I think that once we satisfy the obligation to ensure that our, that our children are cared for to the degree that they are going to be okay, basically, um, I don't think that we have really obligations to do a lot more than that. I think that if we're comparing, for instance, saving the life of the child of a stranger, and buying our own child the latest computer gadget, um, I can't see that we have an obligation to provide our own child with whatever he or she wants or whatever he or his or her school friends have uh, that overrides our obligation to help people who are complete strangers to us but who don't have the basic necessities that you need to maintain life. Uh, so I, I, I suppose what I'm saying is I do think that there, I, we can recognize in a limited way a prior obligation to help your children and perhaps some other who are close to you, close friends even maybe, but, but it's a limited one. And um, it's certainly not enough, I think, to outweigh the obligations we have to people in extreme poverty um, once we've got beyond satisfying the basic needs of those close to us. The fourth theoretical, uh, sorry, the fourth objection, the third theoretical objection, uh, is that many people think that while we collectively have an obligation to do something to help people more generally, that it would be madness for any one of us individually to make a big sacrifice if no one else is going to do the same. This sense of it makes no difference what I do. We have that there are problems that we have to address together. But if we don't, if we're not going to address them together, then none of us individually has a reason to act. Well, I, I, this one I do think is a fallacy. Um, it's a psychological fallacy, almost more than a philosophical one. I think to to look at this huge problem, you know, if we say world poverty, 1.4 billion people living in extreme poverty. What can I do about that? You know, in one sense, you might say, I can do nothing about that. Whatever I do will make no difference, really. You know, there'll still be 1.4 billion people living in extreme poverty. Um, you know, the, the number that I can help, even if I devote all my resources, uh, the number that I can help is, is within the margin of error of the, the World Bank's counting, uh, obviously. Um, 
And even if I were Bill Gates, I couldn't solve the problem. I could make a bigger difference, but, uh, and I think Bill Gates is making a bigger difference, but, but I couldn't solve the problem of world poverty. Um, but the fallacy here is to just look at it as one big problem and say, well, either I solve it or I don't. Uh, there are 1.4 billion people, give or take a few hundred million, living in extreme poverty. Um, but I can help some of them. Uh, I can help maybe five, maybe ten, maybe uh, a couple of villages, depending on my resources. Uh, and that does make a difference. Uh, it makes a difference to those people. It makes a difference to those villages. And that's tremendously important. I mean, there's, there's, there's really nothing much that I can do with my money uh, that can make as big a difference to the world as if I use it to help some families or a village that is in living in extreme poverty. Uh, you know, spending the money on myself isn't really going to make that much difference uh, to my happiness or to anyone else's. It may make some, but not a huge amount. But um, spending it to help the world's poorest can make life-changing differences to a, a number of people. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, talking to Professor Peter Singer about his book, The Life You Can Save. You can follow Development Drums on Twitter, the username is Development Drum, on our Facebook group or on our website at developmentdrums.org. Peter, let's move on now to the actions you propose in your book in response to these moral arguments. And in particular, you suggest a sliding scale of how much each person should be giving of their income. Tell us what you propose and how you arrived at it. Well, it's, it's, it's a slightly complicated scale, I guess, because I do want it to be progressive in the way that tax scales are. Uh, and if your listeners don't want to take all of this in, um, they can go to the website that has the same address as the, as the title of the book, thelifeyoucansave.com, and... Uh, they'll be able to find the, the scale there. But, but roughly it says, look, if, if you're living in an affluent country and you're not really you know, poor, you're not uh, around the poverty line for people in an affluent country, uh, which, of course, is much, much higher than this extreme poverty line of the World Bank, uh, then you ought to be able to give uh, at least 1% of your income to help the world's poor. And... If you get up beyond that, as you get up into the relatively affluent, so let's say you're in the top half but not the top 10% of your society, you should work up from that 1% uh, progressively towards 5%, I suggest. And if you get to the top 10%, which in the United States means you're earning uh, around $100,000 a year, uh, if you get to that top 10%, uh, you, you, should, you should be giving 5 percent of your income. Uh, and then it goes up from there so that if you get to the top 5%, which is earning around 148000 a year, uh, I suggest 10%. And I scale it up until it reaches 33%, one-third. But it only reaches that for people who are earning more than a million dollars a year. So there won't be very many in that category. Uh, I, and I suggest this scale because I think it's a scale that is true to the basic example that we began with. That is something that you could call the, the rule of easy rescue. Um, you're rescuing people without imposing a huge burden on yourself. I don't think that 
1% or 5% or 10%, given the kind of income that the people have once we get up to the 5 and 10% and above levels, I don't think that's imposing any real burden on them. Uh, and that's why I think it's something that we can say, this is what you ought to be doing. You can do more if you like, but, but this is the kind of community standard that we want to set so that we can say that uh, if people are not giving in accordance with this scale, they're doing something wrong. They're, they're not meeting that moral obligation that we were talking about earlier. And in your book, you argue that if people gave that kind of sum of money, that that would be enough to make an appreciable difference to world poverty. Oh, it works out. This is the thing that surprised me about doing these calculations. It works out to a huge sum of money. Um, I did it just for the people in the United States because I had U.S. tax department figures on how many people there were in each of these income brackets. And... Uh, I was quite astonished uh, at, at how much was realized just from the United States alone, um, something like half a, half a trillion dollars, um, which, you know, if you compare it with what Jeffrey Stack says would be needed to meet the Millennium Development Goals, uh, it's uh, several times as much as is needed, uh, and that's just from the United States alone. So if people throughout the affluent world were to give them this, um, we'd be around a trillion and a half dollars uh, in aid per year, uh, which I really think would be enough not only to meet the Millennium Development Goals, which is important to meet those goals that all the world leaders pledged to meet in, um, in the year 2000, uh, but we could go further. We could really start cutting into this vast amount of world poverty, the 1.4 billion people. We could develop new projects. We could afford to experiment and be innovative about what projects really work to assess them properly. Um, I think if we were giving those sorts of amounts, we would be on the road to uh, virtually eliminating uh, large-scale extreme poverty over the next two or three decades. Now, as you've mentioned, the numbers that you're proposing are set out on your website, thelifeyoucansave.com. And you also suggest that people who are willing to make this commitment should make a public pledge on the website on the grounds that there'll be some sort of demonstration effect that will encourage other people to do the same. And when I checked uh, this morning, I, I see about 3,500 people so far have done so. Is that more than you were expecting or less than you were expecting? I didn't really know what to expect, I must admit. Um, it's, I think it's good. I think 3,500 is um, uh, you know, a good number of people that are pledging to do something serious. Uh, uh, to start, what I don't know is how many people have heard of the website. Um, so people who've read the book will have heard of the website because it mentions it in the book. Um, I don't even have really sales figures as yet for how the book is doing worldwide, but you know, maybe the book has sold 20, 30,000 copies. I, I really don't know. Um, so it's, you know, we could say maybe, maybe we're talking about 10% of the people who've read the book. That's not bad. Um, but the problem is, you know, there are of course more people who've heard of the book or heard of the website perhaps through interviews like this one, of which I've been doing quite a few. Um, and so from that perspective, you could say, well, it could be higher. It's not as if everybody who hears about it is going there and pledging. That's 
obviously the case. So from that perspective, yes, perhaps, perhaps we could have hoped that it would be higher. Um, but it's, it's still moving up. It's moving up steadily. The website's now in, I think, 12 languages, and we're increasing the number of foreign translations of it. So we're reaching uh, a large possible audience anyway. Uh, and I hope it will keep going, and I hope we'll start to eventually to see it uh, getting up and above 10,000, which will, will start to look pretty respectable. But, but it just really all depends on how much does this idea catch on. If it really were to catch on, uh, we, could, we could get even more, and that would be great. Let's take a couple of questions from our listeners. And this one, I think, is quite a compliment. It's from Errol Treslin, and he asks this question on Facebook. He says... If I gave you 2000 US dollars right now and asked you to direct it to the most worthy charities, where would you direct it? And he adds, please keep in mind that the answer that you give will actually be implemented by the Canadian Errol Treslin who asked the question. And he says he's a huge fan of the life you can save. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And it's great when people are prepared not only to, to search for that information, but really to make a difference. Uh, and there are many possible answers that you could give to this question. So I'm going to suggest one which, which in a way talks about a method rather than a particular content. And that is, I'm going to say um, donate it to givewell.net. You can find them on the web, givewell.net, um, and ask them to put it towards the money that they award to the organization that they find most effective in saving lives. Now, to explain to those who don't know about GiveWell, I talked about them in the book. Um, this is an organization started by a couple of, of guys who were working for a hedge fund uh, in the United States, were making quite a bit of money, wanted to give some away, uh, and wanted to say, how will we know that our donation will be used effectively? And so they contacted a number of charities, but all they got was kind of glossy brochures with smiling kids and not a lot of hard information about what their money would be used for. So they decided to set up an organization that would scrutinize a number of charities and try to decide which ones you could really be confident that your money was being used cost-effectively. Not just that we were talking about earlier, the administrative costs were being kept low, because that's not enough to say that your donation is really doing some good, obviously. You could have low administrative costs and give it to projects that were not well thought out or not well thought out and were not effective. So, so what they did was they said, look, we'll set up a, an award. They didn't start with a lot of money, so I think it was only $10,000 uh, the first year they did it. And we'll invite organizations to document how effective they are at saving lives, uh, saving lives of people in extreme poverty. And uh, we'll give this $10,000 to the one that's most effective. Uh, and having done a first round, they, they're doing it again. And uh, they, I think they've been able to increase the amount that they're giving. So hopefully they'll get more organizations competing for this award. Um, but the more people who give them money, then, then they can put it towards the award. And, and in that way, the donation works twice. It works firstly to increase the amount of the award and therefore to get more organizations thinking, can we demonstrate our cost effectiveness to give well so that we can get this award? And that's a good thing because obviously the 
charity should think about their cost effectiveness. Uh, and secondly, the money will then go to the organization that uh, a couple of, of very bright guys um, have judged um, is the most cost effective in saving the lives of those who are in extreme poverty. So we don't know at this stage because they're, they're working on the ground, they haven't done their work. We don't know what organization that would be. But I would have confidence that whatever organization give well judges to be effective will be, if not the most, at least you know one of the really effective organizations that you could give to. So there you are, Errol, that's, that's your answer. And I'll put a link to give well on the Development Drums website at developmentdrums.org. And there are also links there to uh, the Life You Can Save website and to Amazon where you can buy the book. Uh, I've got a question now from Alice Evans, who put the following. She says, I totally agree with Peter Singer's moral arguments, but I'm less convinced by his claim that we should give money to NGOs. I agree that we should give up some of our incomes, but perhaps not to NGOs, since they are a messy business with possible adverse implications for governance. I think she means in developing countries. If we want to give money to the poor, why don't we reduce our own, such as by ending the common agricultural policy, ending tariffs on goods where developing countries have a comparative advantage, regulating the arms trade, cracking down on tax havens, reducing international migration restrictions, and taking much more preventative action on climate change. Those changes would increase the incomes of developing countries, but without reproducing the power relations that currently characterise charitable giving. What's your, what, what's your answer to Alice? Well, my answer to that is, um, if you really think that you have the ability to bring about those changes and that your contribution can make a, or has a chance of making some difference to the prospects of bringing about those changes. Yeah, fine, I'm not gonna argue with you. Um, I think it's excellent that we have people working for a fairer global trade system. Um, I think Alice talked about the common agricultural policy. Well, that's relevant for people living in the European Union. It's not relevant for people living in the United States or Australia. Um, The United States, you could campaign against uh, grain subsidies and cotton subsidies in particular, which are harmful to the ability of developing countries to trade. Uh, I'm currently speaking from Australia. Australia is good on agricultural policies because it's an agricultural producer itself, so it, it, it's also working against agricultural protectionist policies. So, so you can't do anything there. We could certainly work for um, better climate change policies for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and for taking a strong stance that uh, the Kyoto, sorry, the Copenhagen uh, uh, conference is coming up later this year. Uh, and uh, yes, for uh, increasing uh, immigration. Uh, a lot will depend on what country you're in, what the political system is like, what the prospects are that you could really change here. Um, and that's what you're balancing. You're balancing it, you know, suppose that you're able to give, let's say, $5,000 a year or something, you know, whatever your income allows you to give. Um, with that amount of money, I think you could make, if you pick the right NGO, uh, as I was just talking about before in response to uh, Errol Tresland, um, uh, if you pick the right NGO, you could save um, maybe five lives, maybe more um, for that amount of money. Uh, 
if you give it to a campaign to cut uh, greenhouse gas emissions, it it may do nothing at all. Um, we don't know. We don't know to what extent money is going to influence that issue. It, it may be that you'd be better to spend some time writing to your representatives about that or getting out in the streets with people. Uh, there are all sorts of things. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely in favour of trying to make the changes that Alice referred to. Uh, I'm just not really convinced that um, that's something that we should do with our money instead of giving it to um, to NGOs. Uh, you, know, you might want to give some to those causes to encourage them as, as well as giving uh, some perhaps more to NGOs. I've got a related question, which is perhaps the only nuance that I disagree with in your book, and that's your equivocation about whether giving aid through official aid budgets from government, mainly to other governments, works. I mean, you say in the book, and I've heard you say elsewhere, that some official aid works and that it might even be a good thing overall. But your recommendation, if you want to be certain, is to give money through NGOs and organisations that deliver services directly. Is that, is that a fair summary of your view? I think that's a fair summary. I mean, a lot will depend on on where, what country you're, you're talking about. So um, if I've given interviews in the United States, for example, I'll be fairly critical of the quality of USAID for various reasons. One, because of the political distortions in the countries that receive it, with Iraq getting by far the most US foreign aid, although it's not one of the poorest countries. Um, also issues about requirements to buy goods produced in the U.S., which increased the cost of them, um, and so on. Uh, so I think, you know, U.S. official aid is probably not highly effective. Um, if you've heard me give an interview in Sweden, um, uh, as I have, because the book's been translated into Swedish and published there, uh, you'll find that I'm more respectful of the Swedish uh, program, because I think it is better thought out and uh, basically less politically distorted than the US one. Um, and and you know, other countries maybe maybe somewhat in the middle. So I think it varies. But generally I, I would say that my impression is, and it is only an impression, that aid from uh, good NGOs anyway, select the NGOs, is more effective than government aid. I, I have to ask you this because lots of people listening to this are British. Where you put DFID, the UK Department for International Development, in your spectrum between Swedish CEDA and American USAID? Well, I think it's probably between the two, and I would think it's closer to the Swedish end of it. Um, I think of the British Department as a, as a good one, as a thoughtful one, lots of um, bright, bright and uh, dedicated people working for it, um, less distorted by political considerations, um, far less than, than the United States. Um, you know, there is some favouring of, of uh, former British colonies, British Commonwealth countries, but, but, you know, as it happens, there's plenty of those that are among the extremely poor nations uh, in Africa and elsewhere. So that doesn't have such a, a distorting effect. Um, so I think, I think British aid generally does, does a good job um, and uh, so it's, it's closer to the the sort of excellent end of the spectrum rather than the uh, poor end of the spectrum. Uh, I think they'll be pleased to hear that. Let, I, just still on this question of NGOs versus government aid, let's, let's go back to your pond story. Suppose I've 
done what you've said and I've paid my organisation um, that will in effect provide lifeguards for the pond that I uh, usually uh, walk past. And I now walk through the park the next day and I'm pleased to find that there's my pond and it's now protected by lifeguards and there's nobody drowning. But then I walk on and I go to a part of the park that I haven't visited before and I come across more and more ponds where not only are there people falling in, but there are more people than ever before drowning because the very few lifeguards that used to circulate among these ponds, inadequate numbers of lifeguards, have now been all hired away by my organisation to protect the pond that I first came across. And it's kind of a, a convoluted analogy, but there is a danger, isn't there, that if, in, if you fund NGOs, that you pull the resources and the skilled people away from the shared government systems that need to be built up and funded and resourced and staffed so that they work for everybody and not just the small numbers of people that the NGOs are serving. Um, and in a sense, I know it sounds a bit theoretical, but in a sense that has been happening with government health systems who are having to compete for money and for doctors and nurses uh, for government. And they're competing with little NGOs who are um, smaller, less joined up, often less efficient than the government service would be. So is there a danger of an unintended consequence that you, you do good by supporting an NGO, but actually what you're doing is undermining the progress that that country is making towards being able to provide that service for everybody? Yes, I think that is a real danger, and, and I like the, your, the way you use the pond analogy. It's been used by many people in different directions now. One of the things I love about it is the way it can be, it, it can be used to illustrate a whole lot of, of different problems, and uh, you did that nicely. Uh, so, yes, there is that danger. Um, I'm not really sure what to do about it, I must admit. Uh, what one would hope is, of course, that the greater demand for trained and educated people would spur more people to get training and education. Um, and uh, you know, we assume that the talent pool is not so small that it gets totally soaked up by the NGOs um, and that with training and education, there can be more people who can, who can do this uh, in, in the country. So that in the long run, even if there's a, a short-term shortage of, of trained people to do the work because the NGOs are, are sucking them up, taking, employing them, uh, that in the long run uh, it will be demand-driven and, and there will be, uh, the supply will, will come because people will see that they can get work under reasonable conditions by doing this. Now that may take some time, um, but I can't see why that shouldn't happen uh, in the long run. Um, as long as, you know, it's, as long as the government's still see the need to do this. Uh, somebody else put to me a slightly different point, which is, I guess, that not so much that the NGOs are soaking up the talent, but um, that the governments are saying, well, the NGOs are doing this, so we need to do it. Um, and that, that's another danger to watch out for. Uh, and I would you know, think at some point, maybe NGOs have to say to governments, look, you know, we're only here to supplement and uh, deal with certain uh, niches that you can't or provide extra resources. But if, if you're not even making the effort to do what you should be doing, what you do have the resources to do, we're not going to be here forever. Um, we're going to go to other places where 
we can see that the government is doing what it can to make a contribution, uh, but still needs our help. Most of your your pond analogy and your hypothetical situations are a stark choice between saving a life uh, and um, uh, or allowing someone to die. But actually, of course, for a lot of what development work is about, it's not... I mean, some of it is, and you gave the example of measles vaccines, is pretty directly saving lives. But a lot of it is about building... Uh, institutions and capacity and reducing conflict and doing things that are expected to save lives in a more indirect way um, uh, rather than just in fishing a kid out of a a pond to stop him or her from drowning. And Robbie Tilliard, who's at the University of Melbourne, uh, who says Singer rocks, um, says, is it possible to construct an ethical choice that deals with the more difficult but more prevalent situation where we're talking about increasing capabilities rather than strictly saving a person's life? That's a more realistic scenario and, and more relevant. Yes, um, it is, and it's very hard to evaluate. I mean, you could certainly say in the long run, um, building capacity may do more to help the poor and to save lives than um, vaccinating kids against measles. Um, But we would need to know that, really. I mean, what troubles me, and one of the reasons I support uh, evaluation of the kind that GiveWell talks about is is what troubles me is, you know, you could could put a lot of money and resources into capacity building, uh, and you have to wait many years before you find out whether it's really made a difference. And maybe it hasn't. Um, so that that worries me. In a world where there is such a lot of need, um, urgent needs that are there right now, uh, it worries me to put money and resources into something that is long-term and doesn't have clear evaluation to show that it is going to be making a difference. Um, I accept that we have to experiment and we have to try some of these things, but I don't think, you know, maybe we should try them on a small scale. I don't think we should scale up uh, unless we really have some good grounds to believe that what we are doing is going to bring about the results that we want it to bring about. A lot of the critics of your book argue that one way or another you're asking too much of people, um, that that essentially that your arguments are very persuasive but they lead to conclusions that for a lot of people they're very difficult to implement in practice because they they make people make sacrifices that lots of people are actually unwilling to make um, d- does that worry you does it worry you that the conclusions um, if the conclusions seem implausibly demanding does that ever make you worry whether the reasoning is correct whether if, it, if it's led to a conclusion that a lot of people find counterintuitive, uh, that maybe there's something wrong with the argument? Uh, It doesn't really worry me in the sense that there's something wrong with the argument. I I think it's not at all surprising that people would find the argument uh, or the conclusion too demanding. We are, after all, uh, creatures who've evolved from millions of years of selection of those who look after their own interests and the interests of their offspring. Um, so that's just a sort of a biological phenomenon that we tend not to see things from uh, an impartial perspective, but we tend to see things from that perspective of thinking of ourselves and our kin. Um, so it doesn't really make me think 
argument is not sound. But, of course, it does worry me if um, people are not going to do anything because the argument is so demanding. And that's why, uh, that's why the last chapter of the book is there and that scale that we were talking about before that is on the website. Um, that's what that's about. It's about trying to say to people, look, just do this. This is not so demanding, and yet you'll be contributing, not only making a difference to the poor, but helping to create a kind of culture of giving, a cultural standard by which people give uh, something that is much more than most people give now, but still not a crippling sum, something that we could easily get used to and find quite acceptable. So let me put the opposite argument, which is not that you're asking too much of people, but that you're not going far enough. Normally, if we if we conclude that people have moral obligations to do things or not to do them, we pass laws about them. We require that people don't steal or that they don't beat people up. And we also use compulsory tax to increase uh, the incomes of the poor, for example, or to pay for social services. And yet in this book, you don't go that far. You don't recommend that we should make a law requiring people to make the kinds of donations that you say that they have a moral obligation to make. So, so what is it about the moral obligation to give money for people in developing countries that, may, that means you think it isn't sufficiently important for us to make it a legal obligation? I know it's not that it's not sufficiently important. It's that um, if you try to make something a legal obligation that the public is not ready to accept, uh, you, you don't get good results from it. I mean, it's it's the old stuff about prohibition, I, I guess, again, if you make laws that, that the public doesn't accept. Um, would be the same, for example, if I tried to legislate that everybody should be a vegetarian. Um, you know, I think that would be a great thing because it would end factory farming just like that. Um, so wonderful if you could, if you could do that. Uh, good for animals, good for the environment, good for human health. But but you can't do that. You can't, um, you know, even if somehow you manage to get a majority of parliamentarians who would support it, um, if they're not at least to some extent representative of the attitudes of the uh, people out there, the electorate, um, it's not going to be obeyed. Uh, people will get around it. It will create a kind of, you know, underworld of, of, uh, of people who break the law and maybe will increase corruption among the police who are supposed to enforce the law. And the government will presumably get voted out at the next election. So I don't think there's you know, much point in talking about compulsory giving on the sort of scale I'm talking about. Now, if you want to say we should increase the amount of RA that is given from the government budget from, say, you know, in the United States, from 18 cents in every $100 the country earns to 50 cents in every $100 the country earns, uh, you know, yeah, I'd support that. That would be a good thing. Um, and in Britain, uh, I can't remember exactly what it is in Britain, but I think it was about 45 cents or something. So, you know, if you could increase it to the level of Sweden, where it's nearly nearly 1%, nearly one pound in every 100 pounds that the country earns, um, yeah, that would be good too. But I don't think you would go a lot further than that without um, having so much opposition that it would be counterproductive. Peter, as somebody who lives in a developing country and who works in development, I actually want to say thank you to you for writing this book. I think it takes some courage to make an argument which is 
clearly quite troubling for many people because it presents so much of a challenge to the way we live our lives. And in some ways, I'd, I'd be interested to know whether you think this is right. I think there are parallels between your work and the work of people like Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce, who made the case in the 1780s and 1790s that slavery was immoral. And at the time they began their campaign, there was a tiny minority who thought that, um, who either understood and thought about the moral arguments or who believed that the economy could function without slavery. And yet in 1807, the Slave Trade Act was passed um, really as a result of their campaigns. Uh, I know, I'm sure you're going to say that you, you, you know, you're much too modest to compare yourself to people like Clarkson and Wilberforce. But do you think there is a movement that can be started that will, um, as as the anti-slavery movement did um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, that will change people's attitudes to how we live together on the planet and what obligations we owe to people in developing countries? Well, I certainly, I certainly hope so, um, because the anti-slavery movement is a wonderful example of uh, an encouraging example for anyone who thinks that there is something morally wrong with, with what's going on and wants to join together with other people to change it because, uh, you know, you described it exactly correctly. They were a very small group at the start, um, little support, um, but it grew quite rapidly and, and was uh, overwhelmingly successful. So uh, if we could do something like that with global poverty, that would be fantastic. Um, I think we can. I don't really see any insuperable barriers. I mean, there are some things we haven't yet talked about, like, uh, you know, what do you, people often say, what do you do about uh, corrupt dictatorial governments? And, and there are, there will be problems in, in some countries, undoubtedly. Um, but uh, there are many countries where that's not a problem, where we could be doing more than we are. So, uh, yeah, I, I think this is something that can be done. Um, I think that uh, a lot of people have already contributed to the thought processes and the ideas. I'm just uh, one among several, but um, I hope that the time is right for these ideas to spread, as it was at the uh, end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century for the anti-slavery movement. Peter, thank you. I've been talking today to Professor Peter Singer, whose book, The Life You Can Save, is in the bookshops now, and I will put a link to it on the Development Drums uh, website. Um, in case it isn't obvious from the conversation, it's a very readable, very accessible, utterly convincing book. So I highly recommend uh, people to go out and buy it and read it. Peter, thanks for joining me on Development Drums. Thanks very much, Owen. It's been really good to talk to you. Um, thanks for your support, and thanks for helping to spread the message.
My brother 